Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Keir Starmer recorded in front of a live audience. Another one of the very special interviews I recorded at the Garrick Theatre. Every single one of those will be put out as individual episodes. And this represents, I think, the first time, really, that Keir Starmer has been in front of a live audience since he became leader of the opposition. Um, This is a real treat of an episode. Before we come on to the details of that... Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com, with your stories of unusual places you've seen politicians or strange encounters you've had with them. You can also email the show, general feedback, suggestions for guests, anything you like. Um, Alfie has been in touch and said in 2006, a couple of years before he became mayor of London, Boris Johnson ran for another elected office, University of Edinburgh rector. A few mates and I decided to pitch up to one of his events at the JMCC bar at Pollock Halls of Residence, where he was met with a barrage of protesters chanting down with top-up fees, down with Boris. One student poured a pint over his head when he got up to address the crowd. As his campaign whisked him out to move him onto another venue, my mates and I ended up following directly behind him. I overheard one of the campaign informing him of the plans for the evening. We're going to this pub, then to this pub, then onto the union, then out clubbing, to which Boris replied, and I swear this is true, clubbing what? Seals? Now knowing the plans, <laughs> my God. Now knowing the plans, we ca- thank God it wasn't, by the way. Well, let's find out. Knowing the plans, we camped ourselves in one of the aforementioned pubs, and sure enough, Boris turned up and ordered a pint of bitter. We ended up having a short chat with him over a pint, discussing all the matters of the day, such as mice in student flats and how disgusting the scrambled eggs are at one of the student unions. After that, he was off again. Needless to say, he didn't win the election. That honour went to Green Party MSP Mark Ballard. I wonder if he ever thought he'd beat a Tory Prime Minister in an election. Alfie, that's a brilliant story. Thank you very much. Email yours in to Political Party Podcast at gmail.com well um <laughs> if he wants if, if my if today's guest wants tips on how to beat uh, boris johnson perhaps he should get in touch with mark ballard so mark ballard if you are out there if you are listening if anyone you know is listening get in touch with the show and email me political party podcast at gmail.com your recollections of that uh, stunning victory over boris johnson in edinburgh um well here we go then. Keir Starmer, lead with the opposition. He's been on the show before when he was Shadow Brexit Secretary. And I think that interview um, is one of the best interviews I've heard with him. And I don't say that because he's on the show, but I just thought he was relaxed. And that great mix, the, the ideal guest, really, to, to this show, particularly in front of an audience, I think, has that mixture of can tell a few funny stories and give real political insight. And that's kind of what makes, um, in short, I mean, there are other things as well, of course, but in short, a nice mix of the two, um, is is really, really good. And uh, Keir Starmer brought that first time. He brings this second time. He's got some fantastic stories about his time in law. And we get the full story of what really happened 
when he was confronted by, I was going to say that angry pub landlord. I mean, angry doesn't do it justice. Livid uh, pub landlord down in Bath. So he tells that story really well. And of course, we reflect on his first year in charge, the pressure he's under, how he deals with it, and crucially, where he's going to take Labour in the future. How does Labour ever win a general election again? Uh, And what's his plan uh, for the future of the party? There's a whole load of other stuff in as well, uh, including... Um, some tips for any budding impressionists who might be doing him on Spitting Image. Uh, But this show starts again with some stand-up, which is just such a thrill for me um, to be back on stage, recording this show anyway. But uh, doing stand-up at somewhere like the Garrick is a real treat. So uh, there's a bit of live stand-up at the start of this as well. And then uh, an interview with the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. It's a gem of an episode. Enjoy. Uh, In Scotland, by the way, there's been a reshuffle of the SNP government, you may have seen. Um, In short, uh, the guy who was shit at health is now going to be shit at COVID. And (laughs) the guy who was shit at transport is now going to be shit on the climate. So that's that's reassuring for all of us south of the border. Um, The Tories, of course. How can I not talk about the... uh, Prime Minister who... Survived COVID. Uh, Feels like a long time ago now, but I feel like I should mention it. I mean, I am glad for, you know, whatever the comedy and stuff like that, I'm glad he survived because, um, I mean, I'm doing him on Spitting Image. I can't lose him and Trump. <laughs> Fucking bills to pass. I think, but, uh, um, it's so funny watching those two because he doesn't know how to deal with Starmer at all. And he tries to still wheel out some of the Corbyn's, are you this, this semi, are you pro Cuban, pro Marxist, are you Venezuelan? It doesn't. When it's, it works on Corbyn, so a lot of that stuff's true. It doesn't work on Keir Starmer at all. And where Starmer really gets under his skin is on crime. And I think Starmer should really go on crime. Because there was a line he had, I can't remember what it was, but it was something like, I spent my career, Adam, um, coming after the break. Uh, I don't think so. He said, um, he said <laughs> Mr. Speaker, I, I spent my career locking up criminals. He spent his career letting them out. You think, that is a fucking great line. And it's the sort of line you could absolutely see Boris taking. And I think Starmer should go further. I'd get rid. Labour hasn't talked about crime really since Tony Blair. And um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing that. I love him. But he's. Uh, they haven't. And you're like, fuck. When I say this to people, imagine he talks about crime. They're like, oh yeah, that'd be what a change that would be. Starmer could go really big. Like, you know, I spent my time locking up terrorist scum. He's, he lets them back out on the streets. Really getting a... Because Boris is the sort of politician that he, at the moment, would take the bait. There's no question. Well, yes, we did let them out, actually. And do you know, do you know why? They are a lovely... Uh, the, uh, the, because they promised they wouldn't do it. And, and how... Uh, they did. They did. They did. And some of them were very convincing. And... Uh, uh, come on. I mean, how did I... How was I supposed to do? I think... Phoebe. Anyway. Come on. You would absolutely take the bait. There's no question. No question in my mind. But um, Boris has survived. The nurse that treated him, uh, Jenny McGee, has said that she's leaving the employee of the NHS because she doesn't feel respected enough. Um, probably while she was treating him, to be honest. <laughs> oh, nurse, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine treating him in A&E. Fucking, that'd be like a carry-on film. <laughs> carry-on breathing. <laughs> Just for a couple of days. He survived, it's fine. Depends on your point of view. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine him now? Oh, come on, yeah. What's got he nurse? What's got two thumbs and loves blue jobs? This guy. <laughs> Absolute nightmare. 
Right, nurse, nurse, nurse. I, 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 come on. I've seen the, I've seen the, uh, I want a bed bath like that guy in bed number three. You were discharged 11 months ago. What are you still doing here, you pervert? Imagine having to deal with him in hospital. He would turn everything into an innuendo. Okay, Mr. Johnson, I'm going to flip you over. Oh, it's usually me seeing that. Uh, okay, open wide. I'm going to put this down your throat. Oh, it's usually me seeing that. Uh, okay, we're finished now. Leave and never come back. Oh, it's usually me seeing that. Um, but his, uh, the latest scandal to, to hit and bounce off him is this uh, fucking brilliant story that he's been having secret takeaways. Delivered to Downing Street, right? High-end stuff. Lady Bamford, a friend of uh, the Tory party, a Tory party donor, runs one of these kitchens where they will send you the food to cook at home. It's been, to keep it under wraps, um, until, of course, you microwave it, uh, it's been <laughs> delivered by her butler on a, like, TFL Boris bike. They've been, he's been dropping it off at the gates of Downing Street. You've got to Google this because the photos are hilarious. It's literally a butler dropping off these big bags of food at the gates of Downing Street using the codename Alex, because he's Alex de Fefefel Boris Johnson instead of Boris. Now, firstly, I've got to tell you this. In the last eight months, the value of the food he's been given is £27,000. Yeah, and that's after a 30% Uber Eats discount. <laughs> Fairly normal price for a takeaway in London, actually. Some people go, he's actually got a good deal there. Might look it up on Deliveroo. I mean, if you, if any other street in the UK, if you said, there's a guy on a bike using a code name and delivering stuff with a street value of £27,000, <laughs> the first thought would be, he's probably looking for Michael Gove. <laughs> what a way to continue the show, ladies and gentlemen. This is a real, real treat. Uh, our next guest is someone I've had on the show before when he was Shadow Brexit Secretary. He now works and, and uh, mixes far more elevated circles. Last week, he was interviewed by Piers Morgan. <laughs> so he's obviously got a thing for being interviewed by chubby, egotistical blowhards. So uh, <laughs> I said I'm in the same bracket. Uh, I, I mean, this is such a treat because, actually, given the last year and a half, very few people have actually seen my next guest live at all. So we are all really lucky tonight to have uh, a, a guest who is very possibly our next Prime Minister. So ladies and gentlemen, please give a huge political party welcome to the Leader of the Opposition, Keir Starmer! Hiya. Hiya. That's a real audience. This is, this is fantastic. I've been stuck for 14 months only speaking to a camera without real people. This is brilliant. So this is, this is kind of the leader's speech you could have had. <laughs> well, look, there's some common features. So um, we were on the leadership campaign um, just before the restrictions kicked in with... The idea of that was to go around the country, see as many people as possible, get as many people in one room as you possibly can. The more hands you shook, the better. That was what it was like at the beginning of last year. Then we had lockdown. I was announced as the leader of the Labour Party. And I got in my head this moment that if I made it to be leader of the Labour Party, I would turn from the membership of the Labour Party and address the nation for the first time. It's normally in a massive conference hall with thousands of people. Um, and it's a real moment. You know, you really face... Um, the public, the whole of the nation. By then, we're in lockdown. <laughs> so my leader's acceptance speech was done in my living room, on my own, 
with a camera, a microphone, and I was speaking. The nation was a brown armchair in our front room that I was trying to give this rousing speech to. So it's really nice to be here with a, with a real audience. It's fantastic. Well, it's great to have you here. And, and, and how did the armchair react? Did it go down well? Oh, I mean, I could, I could see the emotions pumping through as I got to the high points and, the, and, and the, you know, absolutely moving around the room by the end of it. <laughs> well, it's good to have you here, Kit. And um, uh, not a brown armchair, a black no. one. Um, but, um, but a safe seat. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> um, which, which can be tricky. Yeah. Um, so We've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's get Hartlepool out of the way. Um, what, what happened? It, I mean, it was a terrible result, a really bitter disappointment. You know, that's a seat that we've held as the Labour Party for many, many years. Um, we nearly lost it in 2019. We had 15,000 votes. The Conservatives had 11,000 votes and the Brexit Party had 10,000 votes. Um, and we needed to reverse that, hold on to the seat, but it looks as though all of those that went Brexit in 2019 used it as a stepping stone across to the Conservative Party and we lost heavily. And that, is, you know, that was a bitter, bitter blow. In a weird way, is there a positive in it for you that you can say to the party, look, if we just carry on basically in neutral and just... You know, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn, but we just carry on just being Labour as we are. We're going to get wiped out. We need radical change now, and Hartlepool proves it. Yes. Um, it shows that, I mean, we had a mountain to climb. We've got to do a huge amount of change within the party, and we've got to do whatever we're doing, we've got to do more of it. Um, and we can never give up on places like Hartlepool, never give up. Um, that um, loss is deep in the Labour Party, and we need to turn it around. And one of the problems that I think we've had for many, many years in the Labour Party is we talk to ourselves. We spend the whole time inward-looking. And, and, and what I want to do is to break the Labour Party open and get everybody to turn out and face the electorate. And uh, that's what we're going to do. But, um, you know, it was a bitter loss. We did have better results elsewhere. Um, and I, a bit of me wishes the results had come out in a different order because if you take... I mean, you know, Hartlepool was counted first. It was the only overnight uh, result. Um, in Wales, by contrast, we got the best ever win for Labour, joint best ever win in, um, in, in Labour in, in Wales. And that was a fantastic achievement for Mark Drakeford, the leader there. Um, Andy Burnham won very well in Manchester, and we won in the west of... England, Merrilty, and West Yorkshire. And, you know, so there are red, red shoots coming through, but there's, there's no getting away from, from Hartlepool. It was a bitter, bitter disappointment. It was, and it, it was the first place, really, you've been able to go out and meet people. I mean, there are other places as well, um, you know, in Bath, where you met a <laughs> pub landlord who was a real fan. <laughs> yeah. I thought you handled him really well. I'll I I just give you the brief version of that. It, it was the week that restrictions were coming off and then people were allowed to go and drink for the, last, for the first time outside pubs. And we were in Bath. I was with Dan Norris, who was our mayoral candidate, who succeeded. It was a beautiful day. Um, and we went around Bath. It's a beautiful city. And this was the pub where we'd had a discussion with the landlord the day before, who was going to welcome us to the pub. Um, and we went and... You know, there were people drinking outside, it was very friendly, it was great, and um, I was chatting to them, cameras whirling because they were with us, and this guy sort of turned up to the left of me, 
I didn't actually know who he was, but I thought, well, it, it could be the landlord, because I knew that at some stage we're supposed to go in the pub and talk to the landlord. Um, and then he started saying, it's only old people. It's only killing old people. And you have effed the economy for old people. We don't need restrictions. We don't need lockdowns. It's only killing old people. And I thought, well, I'm not sure this is the landlord, because <laughs> <laughs> on the briefing I got... <laughs> Oh, shit, that's our candidate. This isn't where I was expecting the conversation to go. So I thought, well, the best thing I can do is to get into the pub and meet the landlord. I, and, and I did go in the pub, and there was the landlord. And unbeknown to us, there were two landlords. The one in the pub, who was perfectly friendly, and the one outside who was berating me because he thought we shouldn't have gone into lockdown, we should have had restrictions. If it was only killing old people, um, presumably then we should have just let that happen. Um, and so, and then the moment I went in the pub, and everybody's probably seen the footage of Get Out, my pub. I mean, not the first time that's happened to me, but, um, <laughs> but you know, Get Out, my pub. Uh, and, and then inside was the other landlord who was smiling away, who was saying, could you pull a pint for us for a picture? <laughs> uh, but, I mean, there, there, is a, there is a serious um, side to that, which is once he started saying it's only, um, it's only you know, killing old people, I did actually then start and confront him because I thought, you know, what politicians do is they smile away and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, I, I'm afraid I don't agree. I completely don't agree. We had to go into lockdown. Um, you know, we were in a, at the beginning of the year when there were a thousand people dying a day and the NHS was nearly overwhelmed. You know, it was obvious that we had to go into lockdown. And if somebody says to me we shouldn't have done, if that just kills older people, I profoundly disagree. And sometimes if you profoundly disagree, you've got to say so. So I did. Well, that was, what was, that was what was really impressive about it, was in an era where politicians don't just not say anything, they then agree with stuff they didn't agree with because they don't want to have a disagreement in the street. You told him straight. You also, as he's screaming at you, very calmly handed him his glasses back. <laughs> I mean, how did you get his glasses in the first place? <laughs> well... Uh, you, if you see the footage, he's, he is screaming away, and I, I think I've got to get out of this pub and I've got to get past him. I did actually see his glasses on the floor, and I thought, they're going to get trodden on, I'll hand them back to him, and therefore <laughs> handed so them back to him as I went out. Um, Very gentlemanly of you to yeah. do that. I mean, you do... Um, but, I mean, somebody said to me, you know, Keir, everybody says, you know, you need to liven up track, show you, show, show you a man that people are getting chucked out of the pub. Sort of three days after they're allowed to open, <laughs> probably taking it a bit far. Yeah. There's a danger in that, though, isn't there? Go, he, he was very popular when he got chucked out of that pub. We should do more of that. <laughs> Until Weatherspoon's on a Friday night. You don't, want to, uh, you don't want to overdo it. But, I mean, I guess you encounter, as a leading politician, a lot of strange people. I mean, you, you encountered a lot of eccentric individuals in your previous line of work as well. Yeah, there's something about the West Country, because... Uh, when oh, I... this is going to come back to haunt you. Uh, when I was a lawyer, um, I, was, um, I had to represent King Arthur Pendragon. Now, i just set the scene for this. Now, King Arthur uh, Pendragon uh, lives near Salisbury. He likes Benny Hennies, by the way. And he's got a big sword, Excalibur, and every solstice, for years, he's been dressed in all the robes, and he goes at dawn to, to the heel stone and touches it with Excalibur. And he's been doing this for years and years and years, and, and nobody takes any notice. And then, if you remember, there was one year, there was invasions of Stonehenge, 
various protesters were there, people were camping there, etc. And then there was an order banning everybody from going to Stonehenge, and everybody left Stonehenge. But um, King Arthur still went on solstice day with, his, with Excalibur and touched the stone. And as he moved away from Stonehenge, he was nicked um, for <laughs> breaching the order that said nobody can go to Stonehenge and summons to Salisbury Magistrates Court, which is where I was then asked to go and defend him. And uh, so he turned up, and the first thing that happened is that he rocked up at court in the gear <laughs> with Excalibur. Now, Excalibur is a big sword. <laughs> and trying to get in a criminal court with a big sword is difficult. <laughs> so, so Excalibur was at the security, so well, he can't come in with that, sir, and took it off him at the door. We go in, and um, he decides he's going to give evidence. And um, I'm thinking, oh, where are we going with this? He's going <laughs> to be asked, you know, where do you live and how old are you? And, this is, and I'm sure he's going to say I'm 1,400 years old. <laughs> but in order to give evidence, you've got to swear on something that means something to you. Now, most people swear on the Bible um, or they affirm, but actually there's an old, old law, 13th century law, that says you can actually swear in court on anything that the court thinks is meaningful to you. Okay. So King Arthur Pandrang Pedrangan stands up in the, in the witness box and he says, I want to swear on Excalibur. It's the only <laughs> thing that means anything to me. <laughs> so the sword that had been confiscated had to be brought to him, which he duly kissed, <laughs> gave his evidence. I'm, I'm glad to say he was acquitted just on the basis that everybody thought this guy should never have been nicked in the first place. <laughs> So, I don't, wow. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm going to the West Country tomorrow, on Thursday, <laughs> for another trip, so we'll see how we get on. <laughs> wow. Well, we got you something meaningful to you. We got you I think the Camden Hells. Camden Hells, which is your favourite beer, I heard. Favourite beer? This used to be brewed under the arches at, near Kentish Town West. I live in Kentish Town, so this is very, very local to me. It's been bought out now, but it's a great beer. Yeah, so we got you a big bottle like you're on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to do PMQs tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah, so what's your prep like for PMQs? Do you do it in the morning? Do you do it the night before? Is it? Does it start Wednesday, you know, after the last one finishes? It's sort of a bit of Tuesday, we start thinking about what we're likely to be asking, so a bit of Tuesday night, but Wednesday morning is when we do most of it. Um, and quite often things are moving on, so you've got to be quite on your toes. And how do you find him as an opponent? Very, very, very slippery. <laughs> very, very slippery. I mean, it's because we're in this um, situation where there's not many people in the chamber, mm. um, and we're not very far apart, we're probably as far as you and I are apart, so... There's, there's not many people around sort of staring at each other. Um, and, uh, and you can watch someone's mannerisms when they're like that. And, um, and he gets up and he, in my view, doesn't always tell it truthfully. Um, and uh, so he gets it wrong and deliberately gets it wrong. And I look at him, when I know he's about to, to say something which isn't quite right, I look at him just to see, is, is his face going to give it away? <laughs> but he, he does it shamelessly. And do, is there any, is there any like off the ball stuff? So when other people are talking, will you often say to him, you're lying? Or will you say, I know you're not telling the truth? Or will you try and get in his head in those moments? Well, because there's not many people around, you don't get as much of that as you normally would. If it's a mm. packed chamber, you get a lot of banter going on. Um, but you can hear him chuntering away. Um, and <laughs> the, I, I can't remember, there's, there's, 
there was something, um, and uh, uh, he, he made a point, and it was complete nonsense. And I sort of got up and said, that's complete nonsense. And I could hear him say, oh, I thought it was a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 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 and, uh, and that's when I couldn't resist saying, uh, as I, I sort of looked across at him and said, if you think that's a good point, you really are in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> because he, I, I've watched it on telly where they will sometimes cut away to him and he's sort of very theatrically kind of... He um, looks around because he can't he stand not having a crowd. Yeah. So he's looking around, it's, there's no one there every week. He hasn't yeah, got, it's so strange. <laughs> <he does laughs> looking that. around, because he needs the crowd, you see. Yeah. Um, and so he, d- he does look around for the crowd. Where are, where are my people? It's weird that he does that when there's no one there. No, like, and it's been like that for a year. <laughs> <laughs> and we're there every Wednesday, 12 o'clock. They're still not there. They weren't there last week, they're not there this week. It's the same. You should say that to him when he does it, because I think it would really get under his skin. Because he sounds... The fact that he said, well, I think that was a good point. (laughs) What is the matter with him? Because at first, his attack on you seemed to be... He just took what he was saying about Corbyn and he would throw it. He'd say, oh, this this semi-Marxist pro-Putin, half-Venezuelan... Come on, what is it? I think he's he's Labour Party... Um, Pinkus marching down like all in Russian gobs. You know, it was all that kind of... Um, it was all that kind of stuff. Now, now I'm not going to give her to get that out of my head for tomorrow now, am I? <laughs> <laughs> but it must be so odd when he's... A, an attack like that that just doesn't resonate and land is a waste of time, or is he, is he on to... You know, is it, is it in a weird way smart of him to try and say Labour hasn't changed? Well, uh, the trouble with that is we have, and so that doesn't take him very far. But what he does do, and watch tomorrow, watch every time, his big rant is on question six. Mm. So we go through the questions, and the big rant is question six. And the reason he does that is the only question I can't get back up and and answer it, because that's the end of of my bit of PMQs. So he says, whatever the question is on question six, um, he will half answer it, and then he'll go to a pre-prepared rant... Um, that, he know, that he does every week. And, um, and the frustration is I can't get back up and answer it, at least till the next week. Yeah, you can't start the following week, though, can you? <laughs> and, what, and, and another thing. <laughs> I just want to... I'll let it go in a minute, but he said something last week. I was going to say, sir, Mr. Speaker. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Now, obviously, I could sort of do a half-decent Boris Johnson. Um, if, if you were to meet anyone that was impersonating you, what, what tips would you give... <laughs> what tips would you give a budding impressionist on, on how to do a Keir Starmer? 
Well, I'd get the voice right. <laughs> <laughs> it's good, but we, we need to spend more time together. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I'd happily agree to that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of knocked it up at short notice. I mean, do, have you... I, I feel kind of... Uh, not nice being under pressure, is it? Um, do you... Have you seen any of the spitting image? And, and if you've seen the clips, do you think, oh, some of it sounds a bit like me? I have seen the clips. Um, and, yeah, I'd take Fox over Clown. Yeah. Um, so, um, Fox is good. Um, I'm not sure about the puppet, but it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> and the voice is great. Oh, thank you. Because <laughs> it must feel I weird. think you do me and Boris in the same bit, don't you? Yes, I have to record them separately. Yeah. But do you... I, I start, we'll start with... Um, are you familiar with Josh Widdicombe, the comedian? Yeah. I'll sort of start there, then go a bit deeper. And you, <laughs> you do sound... Um, you're very good at sounding kind of slightly annoyed with him. I, I agree with the I government. I keep it under yeah, control. Mr Speaker, I, t- I promise it's not being clear. We need a clear answer. <laughs> and by the way, he said something last week I just want to pick up on. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of half there, is it? I mean... Well, look, we've got masks on in Parliament now. You could go along as me <laughs> <laughs> and see, how, see if it works. Yeah, I could do some prank calls. <laughs> Ring up that pub in Bath. Keir Starmer here. I just want to tell you, you'd be a shit. <laughs> <laughs> because one thing I was going to do, and it's that awful thing of saying, oh, if this would have happened, I was going to get the spitting image puppet down and, and wheel it out, but it's basically, it's, it's really expensive. <laughs> and I'm tight. Um, so, what I did instead was think, oh, can I get merchandise of the puppet spitting image sell stuff? And I couldn't find that. But I did find something else. <laughs> um, are you aware that there is Keir Starmer merch available to buy on the internet? Uh, <laughs> I've got seen, bitter already! I've seen one or two things, but I haven't seen all of it. Okay. But I have a feeling I'm about to. You're about to. You're, you're one of the few politicians that, that has this. And I bought it along tonight, and I've got it in the wings. Can you guess what it is? <laughs> this is, are you ready? This was 40 quid. <laughs> so, some expense spared. <laughs> A life-size cardboard cutout. <laughs> of Keir St- I need it, she says, I need it. I mean, how... <laughs> Oh dear. Very serious. <laughs> That's kind of um 40 quid. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give were, it you for 20. You were, you were robbed. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, does that very serious look? Quite catwalky. <laughs> it's a great did you did you I mean I'm presuming they didn't say we're gonna have your photo taken for a life-size couple. They didn't say, would you walk down here, we're gonna make a cardboard cutout of you and sell it for 40 quid. <laughs> but it's um I mean it's cool, right? You really like it, don't you? I mean, I was going to, um, in all honesty, I, I was going to ask you to sign it and I was going to keep it. And then, I, I mean, it's... I thought it was worth put... 40 quid as it is. But... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to put it. I mean, it's, it's not quite life-size, actually, is it? That's the problem. I realise this is slightly odd, you having to sort of stand next to a... Yeah, have I got my money's worth? Oh, it is a bit sad-looking, yeah. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah, you're taller in real life, obviously. But this look at that. 
This is about how tall our son is now, who's 12. This is, this is troubling. Would he, would, he, would he like a life-size cardboard cutout? No. <laughs> Absolutely well, what, not. I could stand behind it and just do the voice. <laughs> go to bed early. <laughs> Get six questions, go in with that. Yeah. And you, Bob's it's, your uncle. It's a cool thing to have, though, isn't it? Not many yeah. politicians have that. I didn't know that existed. There you go, 40 quid. <laughs> should I take it away now, or should I just leave it? You know what, I kind of think that if I have it there looking over me, it will just make me behave better. <laughs> I'll put it away now, I feel like it's uh, slightly weird. I might just have it poking out like that. <laughs> <laughs> just keeping an eye on everyone. Good eye on you, mate. There you go. None of my other guests, none of my other guests have life-size cardboard cutouts of themselves. <laughs> I think that's the coolest thing ever, but I realise it's quite odd for you. It is a bit odd. It is a bit um, odd. There was another story, um, another strange story, about where you'd appeared. Have you seen, I don't know if you read often the Sunday Sport? <laughs> uh, it, it's not on my list. <laughs> um, your face, you know sometimes um, people claim to have seen Jesus' face in like a... Uh, slice of toast. <laughs> Your face apparently has been seen um, in a kebab. <laughs> the, the headline in this week's Sunday Sport was, it's Keir Shawarma. <laughs> it says, face of Labour leader found in kebab. And in um, an interview with the member of um, kebab shop staff, he told the Sunday Sport, um, when I saw that shawarma, I reckoned it was a sign things could only get better. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, that's the I've got to go there, haven't I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, I mean, that'd be a great night out, wouldn't it? Go to Bath, get thrown out of a pub, and then... Um, <laughs> End up in a kebab shop. <laughs> in a kebab shop and see your own face. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I guess, in a way, that's, uh, that's not either positive or negative publicity, is it? That's just weird publicity. Um, how hard is it to be... I mean, it must be so hard to be leader of the opposition anyway, dealing with Boris Johnson in Parliament, trying to change the Labour Party during a global pandemic and having to take the criticism that inevitably comes with leadership. Um, did anything prepare you for the scale of the criticism? Well, it is tough. I mean, it's been... It is tough. We lost really badly in 2019 and we've got a huge amount of change to do and that was never going to be easy. I never thought that was going to be a walk in the park. Um, and it's been tough. Last few weeks have been particularly tough. It's a rough old trade. But you've got to be resilient. You've got to be resilient um, and have an inner strength. And, and that's what I've got. I mean, I've done things before in my life that have been really tough. Um, had issues when I was growing up which were tough to deal with, with my mum being very ill, etc. So I've got that resilience. I've got that inner strength. And I've got a real determination that we're going to do this. I'm not prepared to see our country go through a pandemic like that and not come out to a better future. And we've got to fight for that. And that will be ups and downs, tough bit, easier bit. Um, but you've got to have resilience to do it. But do you, does any of it get to you? Do you think, is it the criticism that sometimes you think, oh, maybe there's an, a kernel of truth in that? Are, are you good at kind of sifting through some of the criticism and thinking maybe perhaps some of it's helpful or if it's abusive, you just ignore it? There's yards of, um, of comment and advice from everybody under the sun. There are so many people out there that could do the job with great ease and great success. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so trying to sift through it, I think, would you know, 
take too much of my life. Obviously, I mean, like any situation, you reflect on it, really reflect on the Hartlepool result, absolute determination, um, that we're going to fight to get a place like Hartlepool back. We're not going to be deflected from what we need to do. We've lost four elections in a row. The Labour Party cannot lose another election, and um, we've got an absolute duty to change this country for the better. So the focus and determination is absolutely there. It's always been there. I knew it was going to be tough, and I've not been disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> you took a very tough line, pretty much on day one, <coughs> on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It's a really impressive action that really sent a message. Um, it really highlighted, really, the, the inaction of, the, of your predecessor. Um, every leader needs those moments, and everyone talks about a Clause 4 moment, where, like Tony Blair had, where he could say, Labour has changed. The anti-Semitism thing was a big deal, and it was important that you, you drew a line under it and took action against the offenders, but in itself it doesn't feel like that's going to be the thing that makes people turn back to Labour. No, that was um, necessary because the idea that the Labour Party um, would tolerate anti-Semitism was something that I felt was just profoundly wrong. I mean, yes, it was losing us votes, but much more importantly than that, Labour, you know, Labour Party is an anti-racist party. The idea of the Labour Party having problems with anti-Semitism or tolerating anti-Semitism um, actually went to core values for me. I don't want to lead a Labour Party that doesn't deal with anti-Semitism. That's why we had to deal with it absolutely core Labour issue that we had to deal with. That was um, a necessary minimum, but we've got to go on and do much more than that. We've got to turn the Labour Party outward to the electorate. We've got to face, you know, we've got to transform the Labour Party, modernise the Labour Party so that we could transform the country and modernise the country. So um, anti-Semitism was a necessary first step and I was absolutely determined that we we're going to tackle it head on and that's what we did. And is there going to be a, a kind of another step where you say, we've dealt with the anti-Semitism, or we're trying to, but we also need to move on from the politics of the Corbyn era and show that there's a, a line drawn underneath that as well? I think that, in many respects, the pandemic has changed everything. Um, you know, the, the discussions we were having in 2019 or 2017 or 2015, for that matter, seem like yesterday's news. So much has changed. Um, that pandemic brutally exposed inequalities and insecurities um, across our country. Brut they were there before. They were there before, whether it's in work, whether it's in housing, in public services, the way the health service delivered, you know, social care. Th those inequalities and insecurities were there. They were then brutally exposed, brutally exposed. Um, and the job now is to fix that and to bottle what happened in the pandemic, which was positive, and hasn't happened in my lifetime. I've not known a time in my lifetime where communities have come together in the way, in the way they did in the pandemic to look after each other, to knock on the door, to check on people. This was across the whole of the country. So fix the problems that have been brutally exposed, but seize the spirit going forward. And in a sense, you know, yesterday's manifesto is not the starting point for that. We, 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 this is profound stuff going forward. I've said we're at a fork in the road, and we, we, we either, as we come out of this, say, well, let's go back to where we were before and patch it up as best we can, or let's go on to something better for our country. 
not quite a 45 moment, not really coming out of the war, not the same thing, but a sense of real change. And if you're going to go, and I think the second is the right way forward, we can change things. For the, we've got a duty to can't go back and say we're not going to fix um, inequality at work, we're not going to fix insecurity at work, we're not going to fix public services, we're not going to fix homelessness, we're not going to fix social care. We can't do that. We've got to go forward. And if you're going to do that, um, I think you've got to face the future, not sort of look round and find, well, where's the document we had before all this started? Or even where's the leader we had before this? People keep saying to me, well, which Labour leader are you most like? And I keep saying, none of them. None of them. Um, we're facing the future, um, and that's the most important thing. Face the future and change the future. Oh. <laughs> The thing is, all those things you say are correct, and people, you know, it has been this huge bonding, very emotionally, you know, bonding in all sorts of ways, but people are feeling that, and they're voting Conservative. So how are the Tories able to communicate that stuff? And I mean, I get that they're in power, and they can deliver the vaccine, and, and that plays a huge part, etc. But talking about it in the way that you did there, for some reason, either isn't cutting through, or people aren't thinking about it like that, or they're not ready to look at Labour yet. I mean, you, you've obviously taken over, I hate to use the word brand, but you, know, you, you inherited after a terrible defeat, so it's always going to take time. Yeah. But why aren't people thinking about Labour in the way that you are, perhaps? I think there's a number of factors at play, and um, it's important to put it in its proper context. It's important for me not to let myself or the Labour Party off the hook, but it is important to put it into context. Um, the vaccine rollout has been a huge success, a huge success. And thank you to the NHS frontline and the volunteers and the Red Cross who've delivered that for us, those on the frontline. By the way, who are being rewarded with a pay cut in real terms from the government. Thank you very much for everything you've done. Um, how do you like a pay cut? But they've done a brilliant job, and everybody has been to a vaccine centre, and that's probably just about everybody now, knows the emotion that that instils in people. I've obviously had the vaccine myself, but I've been to a lot of vaccine centres, and you can almost feel, as the needle goes in, the transformation of people from, you know, chiselled anxiety to relief. Uh, this is, you know, fantastic. So there is a vaccine bounce. Um, the government's been paying the wages on furlough of people for the best part of a year. Not everybody, because people have been left out. Um, and therefore, we're battling some pretty heavy winds, and across Scotland and Wales, and, you know, in England, what you saw in those elections was the incumbent government got the benefit of that. And that is tough going. Add to that that when I took over the Labour Party, we'd had the worst defeat since 1935. We were never... Anybody who says, oh, well, you should have turned that around in a year isn't thinking straight. Um, we need to change the party so that we can then change the country. And there, that's a tough, tough road that we're on. Now, I'm not pretending there aren't things we could do better. I'm not pretending we can't make bigger arguments, and we will. Um, but it has been tough. Add to that um, the frustration of being leader of the opposition in restrictions, not speaking to a live audience. Forget kissing babies. I've not shaken the hand of a single voter. This is very odd for the leader of the opposition. And even when we could do visits, you're going into premises, into business premises, into schools, with a mask on. You know, there's only so loud you can scream about change for the future when you've got a mask on. So all of that is about to change. We're coming out, I hope, of restrictions um, just about for the last time. And I think we all hope that, that, that we're seeing the last of that. 
So the road opens up for us now, but it's, it's been tough going and the environment has not been easy for us. That isn't to let ourselves off the hook because we got ourselves into the pickle in 2019 where we lost very badly. We've got to get, get ourselves out of it. And masks have probably disproportionately affected you because, I mean, you're a photogenic guy. You know, it's, it's, when you take that mask off, people are going to be like, whoa. It's going to be like a sort of se sexy TA. <laughs> like the moment in the film where people take their glasses off like Clark Kent they're gonna go whoa <laughs> so like maybe there'll be a kind of face bounce I don't know whatever it is sort of like, <laughs> you'll go, God he's fit because you do get um you really like <laughs> do you get a lot of admirers do you get some um, fan mail and stuff get a bit here and there yeah yeah and uh, stalkers <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have appreciation thank you <laughs> Because I've seen stuff on social media, which can be a ferocious place. Like, there are, are you familiar with the concept of Stan accounts? Yes. So they're fan accounts after the Eminem song Stan. It's like fan mail to someone. And they put like, your face in like, a love heart. And you know, these super fans that have got like, life-size cardboard cutouts of you, some freaky <laughs> shit. <laughs> but do you see that and think, oh, that's nice. Someone, you know, it's a bit weird, but they like me. Look, I, I don't, I, I've been saying to our team the whole time, don't spend your evenings on social media. Turn Twitter off, either all together or at six o'clock, and certainly before you have a glass of wine. And so I, I don't tend to look at it. There's just too much out there. Because there's good and bad. I mean, uh, there's an odd meme, and this came up with Peter Manderson yesterday, is some people on social media who aren't your fans call you Keith. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Yeah. Now, my theory on this is, because you've got the name of the first Labour leader... It's a way for people on the hard left to, like, de-left you. you know? <laughs> that's, my, that's my conspiracist Blairite instinct, is, oh, they're trying to, like, de-left yeah. you because they don't like the fact you can say I'm named after Keir Hardy. You've given it more thought than I have. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't give a damn, I don't read any of it. Um, which is probably about the most offensive thing I could say to all those people calling me Keith. <laughs> I don't care. I don't look at it. I don't read it. You're wasting your time. <laughs> You're speaking into a vacuum. I mean, that is the best way to deal with it, isn't it? Not sort of reply. I need yeah. to learn from that. <laughs> it's called Kia. Um, I'll, uh, I'll fight the good fight. Um, so with Labour then, there, there seems to be... Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I think this is where the public are. They say Keir Starmer's the best Labour leader for at least ten years. He's impressive, we really like him, he acts in the national interest. He's clearly more talented than the Prime Minister. He would be a better Prime Minister. But I'm not sure about the Labour Party, given the last 10 years, so I just need to see where the party's going. And a lot of people, perhaps, on the right of the party saying, you know, what is Keir Starmer? Is he going to reveal himself at some point to effectively be new Labour by another name? And I know, you, you know, comparisons with previous leaders are frustrating because they're not always entirely accurate, but where are you going to take the Labour Party? Is there going to be a point at which you say, look, we, we need to get back on the centre ground? Uh, forward, not back. I mean, this, this whole... Um pigeonholing um, or on left or right and are you 2019 or are you 1997 is completely bonkers. I mean, 1997, it was fantastic that Labour won the election and we had 13 years of, of fantastic change under the Labour government. That was brilliant. But what Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were confronting a quarter of a century ago is, is very different to what we're confronting now. And therefore, um, 
there is no road for me, for the Labour Party, that takes us back to something, back to 2019 or back to 1997. We've got to go forward. Um, and, and I'm very conscious of the fact, I'm really determined that as leader of the Labour Party, with the leadership team we've got in the shadow cabinet and across the party, that we understand that we have to make decisions now about the future. We can't just outsource it to somebody else. And I'm not going to do it. There are all sorts of people that I'm allegedly outsourcing to. I'm not. I, these are my decisions, and we have to do it as a team going forward, because this bit of history is up to us. Now, we lost, as I keep saying, very badly in 2019, um, and we've got to pick the Labour Party up, turn it round, face the electorate, persuade the electorate to vote Labour, and put ourselves in a position to win a general election in either five years or less than that. Now, if that happens... That is going to be incredible. Incredible. Most people don't think it can be done. Incredible. It will be written up as a piece of history. Um, and I say to my team, don't focus on somebody who did something in the past. Be proud enough to be part of what you're building now so that when we win that general election, you can look back and say, we did it. We did it. So I'm in the here and now, future looking, not that interested in discussions about who was right, yesteryear, whether that's 2019 or, 20, or, or 1997. We can't go backwards. There's, the Labour Party never wins when it looks backwards. We only win when we look forward. 1945 was not about looking back. Um, it was about saying, we're going to build a better future for the country. This is what it looks like, and it's different. Attlee, Wilson in the 60s, white heat of technology, things are changing. Labour's the party of the future. We can capture the future. 1997, Ooh. Tony Blair. But capturing, <laughs> capturing the future, glimpsing the future and persuading people there's a better future with Labour. We only win when we do that. We've got to do it again. And I think, you know, Atlee, Wilson and Blair, all different leaders, but all, what did they have in common? What did they have in common? Despite their different approaches, different programmes, different slogans, different times, they all spoke about the future and were determined to change the future for the better and persuaded people that if you voted Labour, you'd have a better future. We've got to get that winning formula back again because that's the only way of winning the next general election. And... Uh, <laughs> does, does Tony Blair ever, ever offer you advice? Does he ring you up? Say, yes. Um, there's a long yeah, list yeah. of people offering me advice. <laughs> Well, that's very, it. Do you answer? Very, very... Yeah, of course I do. I, I you know, I will, I will talk... To, I mean, all... Um, I, I would talk to anybody who has got advice and ideas about where Labour goes. I particularly talk to people who've won elections. That seems to be a pretty good starting point. Um, but, you know... There's only speak, one of them. Well, you know, but there are, there are other Labour leaders, there are other people in the trade union movement, there are many, many other people, and um, I'm not one of these people who says, I don't need... Um, to have a discussion with you about ideas. Of course I want a discussion with people about ideas. Everything should be tested to destruction. I'm a great believer that every idea should be held up to the light and tested. And I'm not a believer that in any one person resides all the answers to every political problem. That is a really bad and silly thing to think, and I don't think it. And therefore, I, I gain a lot from talking these things through with lots and lots of people. It's a good thing to do. I mean, if, if there was one person, it, it probably, probably would be saying that. <laughs> um, but does he, does he say, look, here, I think, you know, uh, frankly, <laughs> yeah, I think you've got to you know, get back on the centre ground. You know, I think that's where... You know, I talked to Gordon about this, actually. And I think, yeah. 
you know, I know it's different now, and I agree with what you say about the pandemic, but, you know, frankly, you've still got to reach out to those Tory voters that are, you know, worried about, you know, crime and the economy, and you know, I think Labour's got to talk to those people as well. So now, I'm going to get really worried next time I get a phone call from... <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not been Tony Blair at all, it's been you yeah. all along. But, I, you know, Gordon Brown is a great source of advice. Uh, He's doing Keir, really you know, important... It's great to, uh, <laughs> great to talk to you, Keir. Don't listen to Tony. He's full of shit. Uh, <laughs> so next time I get a call from him, I go, get off the line, Matt. <laughs> but I, I guess... I, I guess... Uh, <laughs> do you agree with... I guess what is the Blairite analysis, which is if Labour's not on the centre ground, it loses? Or do you... Is, what you're saying about the pandemic... Not that perhaps it shifted the Overton window, but does it change enough that that is not a rule? I think it opens up really important questions about what needs to change. Now, obviously, I'm not going to unveil a manifesto here, but you know, just to be serious for a few minutes, if we don't change the economy, the economy's got inequality and insecurity baked into it, and it doesn't work. Doesn't e it doesn't even achieve good productivity and research and development. So we've got to break that model. The model for the economy is bedeviled by short-termism, the short-term returns, which means that low wages, um, insecure work, inequality, low investment, low productivity, no research and development, and so it goes on. We've got to break that. Now, whether that's left, right, or in the middle, I don't care. I do know that if, after five years of a Labour government, we haven't changed that, we will be stuck with the same insecurity, inequality at work, and we'll have an economy that doesn't really work. So we've got to change that. I don't care where people put it on the continuum. I don't put it on the sort of left-right continuum. I put it on the forward-backward continuum. Public services. I ran a public service for five years. Um, and I know that if you don't go in early and prevent problems, and you just spend your time sorting them out after the event, and if you don't do, you know cross-cutting stuff, you're going to get nowhere. So, so many people I saw going through the criminal justice system, either in the defendant's box or in the witness box, going round and round, could have been intercepted years ago if someone had put more money into the primary school and actually saved the individual who was going to end up in the dock and the person who was going to be the victim of that person along the way. So change your public services so that they prevent problems rather than just try to mend them after they've already um, existed. We've got a massive skills problem in this country. Young people don't have a world-class education. Lots of people come out of school, and if they don't go to university, we don't value what they do. That's been going on for decades, by the way, and we've got to really change that. Equally, um, we've got to get away from the Westminster knows everything model and put decisions closer to people where they are in their regions, in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, with infrastructure, with money, with skills, with um, plans for the region to answer that call that people have, that more control over what's happening in their lives. And then we've got to change the toxic culture. I am sick to the back teeth of the politics of division. Black versus white, old versus young, rural versus urban, town versus city, leave versus remain. If you're in Scotland, yes versus no. I'm sick of that. Labour values are about bringing people together, about empathy and drawing on what is, you know, best. Uh, we've got a, you know, we've got a by-election in, in Batley. My good friend Joe, who came into Joe Cox, who came into Parliament on the same day as me, what she said was profound. We we got all of that to change. Now you can argue uphill and down dale. Is that left? Is it middle? Is it right? I don't know. And I don't care. What I do know is, if a Labour government hasn't tackled those things five years into office, we will not have done what is necessary to change millions of lives. And if we have, we'll have changed millions of lives 
for the better. So that's the discussion I want to have um, with anybody who's prepared to have that discussion, and that's the journey I want to take the Labour Party on or the country on with everybody who wants to get behind that. And we can make a profound difference and stop talking about it, start doing it. Um, it feels like... Because that one area you could really go on is crime, with your track record and everything. Really get stuck into the Tories on crime. Peter Manderson, I can't remember the exact question, but I asked him to ask a question to you, and it was something about how does Labour rediscover tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, or something like that. But like, you, could, you could run quite a sort of punchy campaign. I mean, do you think that's not the sort of thing Keir Starmer wants to do, like talk about locking up yobs and thugs and scum and stuff like that? Look, uh, <laughs> I spent five years as the director of public prosecution. My job was to, was to prosecute and bring people to court who would eventually, in many cases, go to prison for what they'd done. And that is a good thing. I met so many people whose lives have been blighted by criminal behaviour, whether that's you know, serious terrorist offences. We had one case that was a plot to blow up seven aeroplanes at the same time across the Atlantic. It's why we now can't take liquids on um, planes, or not very much liquid, because they were liquid bombs. So serious terror ca terrorist cases. Huge amount of cases on violence against women and girls, which has a profound impact on people. But even stuff that we consider lower level antisocial behaviour ruins people's lives. So I have no problem with prosecuting those cases. Of course I don't. I actually did it for five years. We did thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases every single year. I had 5,000 staff working with 42 police services. So I don't, the tough on crime bit is no problem for me. But I know that you also have to be, you do have to be tough on the causes of crime. And what the Labour government did, and we can't forget this because it was fantastic, they had Sure Start and they had learning mentors in school. And the learning mentors were, de were with working in primary school often with children who were beginning to go off the rails because of the difficulties they were having at home, not usually to do with themselves. When you're that age, it's very rarely to do with yourselves. And the idea was to, to help them through, give them the support they needed, so that they wouldn't start having problems at secondary school and being excluded and end up on the escalator that takes you into criminal justice. That is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Sure start and learning mentors, a small example, what's happened under this government, they stripped it all away. They've taken it all away. How dare they call themselves the party of law and order? Because if you're not doing that, you're not seriously the party of law and order. All of that has gone. Hardly any learning mentors, all the sure start, or nearly all the sure start since being closed down. And, and then they have the audacity to look around and say, oh, we need to level up. Well, what have they been doing for 10 years? And you sort of look around, so it was pretty unequal around here. Uh, look at this. Oh, look at all this inequality. You've been in power for 10 years. It's ridiculous. Right, and he's, and he's sort of pro Corbyn, um, <laughs> yeah, sort of Venezuelan. That's, but that's all he'll say to it, isn't it? Uh, Keir, this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for coming down. And before we thank Keir, please thank everyone else who's made tonight possible. All the staff here at the wonderful Garrick Theatre. <laughs> everyone on sound and lights and PR and promotion. Whoever made that life-size cardboard cutout? Keir Starmer's soup, Mrs. Starmer. Thank you for coming down. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, this has been an absolute treat. I'm doing one more next week at the Vaudeville with Esther McVeigh and Jess Phillips. You can get tickets for that at mattford.com. And um, just thank you so much for coming out. This has been incredible to be in front of an audience. You've been fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, but please, a huge thank you.
to potentially the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Keir Starmer! Nice to see you. Thank you. Well, there you go. Keir Starmer, what a fantastic guest and what a brilliant night. Um, and there was a real atmosphere in the room for him because it's not only, of course, the first time that he's been in front of an audience. It's the first time, really, people have seen him since he was leader of the opposition. So for those lucky enough to get a ticket, there was a real premium on it, I think, because no one's really clapped eyes on him in the flesh, even those who work in politics, since he became leader of the opposition. So it was a real treat. He was a fantastic guest. It flew by. It was a real treat. And um, I'm now in possession of a life-size cardboard cutout of Keir Starmer. Autographed. I got it signed afterwards. I do realise, by the way, that uh, having a life-size cardboard cutout works far better in the visual medium of being live in the theatre than it does on the podcast. So you'll have to imagine, as I'm sure you did, what it was like for Keir Starmer to be confronted with a life-size picture of himself. Um, and who knows what will happen to that cardboard cutout. I'll hold on to it for now. But maybe in the future it will go to a lucky political party listener, or more honestly, let's, let's be fair, the highest bidder. So um, there's one more show left. Um, there's two more interviews to put out for the ones that I've recorded, Saeed Avasi and Andrea Ledson, but there's one more live show that you can come to at the Vaudeville Theatre in the West End with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. It's going to be a brilliant night. There aren't many tickets left. You can get tickets for that. I've put them uh, the link in the blurb, but or you can just go to mattford.com slash live. Thank you so much for downloading this. Please leave a rating and a review. It genuinely helps the show. Um, it helps get it up the charts, helps other people find it. And that uh, is your, if you've enjoyed it, that is the small way in which you can uh, thank me and uh, my guests for this show. Um, I shall leave it there. Have a wonderful weekend. As always, thank you for downloading it. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.